seated. Uh, we are in a study of the book of Colossians uh, in general, with some of its general concerns, but also specifically with a number of things concerning the worship of God, maybe the particular peculiarities of worship at Redeemer uh, by multiple request. Why is it that we do what we do? We're uh, kind of at a two-part sermon uh, now on the Psalms. Last time I gave a lot of the exposition. I'll do a little more today, but uh, try to ask some larger questions today that I hope will be helpful to you. Last time, mostly just trying to commend to you the Word of God as a uh, delightful, wonderful, profitable, and especially biblical thing to sing. And uh, today uh, we continue again taking up verse 15 through 17 in chapter 3, looking at this matter of the Psalms in worship. Picking up in verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Let us pray together. We do give you thanks even now as we do this study in your word that you have given to us, those perfections that which we just sang. May the kings of earth bless you for your word. May it transform our own minds and hearts and lives that we more and more being conformed to the image of Christ, even his crucifixion as we sang earlier, even the fellowship of his sufferings, that we might know that power of his resurrection and the strength of eternal life in Christ our Lord. Amen. Throughout history, when God's people's hearts have elated in him, they have sung praises. Why, when God brought his people out of captivity in Egypt and delivered them from Pharaoh's pursuing army, Exodus 15 records the immediate response there at the banks of the great sea. They sang a song to the Lord, the song of Moses. In fact, the last song, if I'm not mistaken, in the Bible is in Revelation, the song of Moses and of the Lamb, and a number of similarities between them. But uh, from first to last, the people of God have sung praise in victory and in joy to him. When God gave Israel victory over their enemies under the leadership of Deborah and Barak, they sang. When David brought the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, with much joy they expressed their uh, song. When King Hezekiah restored the temple worship in Jerusalem, the Levites led praises to the Lord in the words of David and Asaph the seer, and the whole assembly bowed down and worshiped. In lonely moments, again and again, David uh, sought the Lord in anxiety for his life. In so many ways, we see how these psalms are, are, are fitted and appointed for all of our days, good and bad. And one day in heaven, as we are all glorified around the throne of God, singing praise to the Lamb that was slain, we will with song rejoice. So it should come as no surprise that the longest book in the Bible... And indeed, the most uh, frequently quoted Hebrew book in the New Testament, the one most often on the lips of our Lord himself, 
is the book of Psalms, a book of singing. God loves to hear his people sing, and so he has sovereignly superintended by the Spirit a major part of his inspired word to be Psalms. It has also, of course, occupied a central place among the Lord's people, not only in biblical times, as I've been recounting to you, but even in the years since. A few years ago, I was chairman of our Synod's Committee on Worship, and we were getting ready to print this blue book, the ARP Psalter that's in your pew. There had been such a renewed interest in the singing of psalms among many. Certainly, I was enthusiastic, and we also wanted to encourage more thought about this in our church. So we hosted a conference at our seminary called, uh, uh, with, titled, Where Are the Psalms? Where Are the Psalms? It was not the standard conference. We were interested, of course, in what resources were available, what people were doing, where are they in that sense. But there was also another sense to that question. We encouraged the participants to consider where are the singing of psalms today? What has happened to us and to the church and maybe to the world? We know that they are certainly a very treasured part of Scripture. They can be sung. They have been sung. They still are sung, of course, in Anglican and Episcopal, Roman Catholic, and Orthodox services every Lord's Day. Certainly, I love the Word of God in general and the Psalms specifically, and I think every Christian would say the same. Well, given those things, for some reason, in so many churches, they are almost completely unknown. Most churches aren't even aware that the songs could be, Psalms could be sung. Um, how a change has come, certainly, even here in America, and how recently it came. And so I will begin with this question today, which we don't, I don't have all the answers to, and maybe you have some ideas as well. Where are the Psalms? Why not Psalms? Last sermon I said, why Psalms? And I gave you so many good biblical reasons why they are so important and so precious and how they do teach us the word of Christ and all wisdom, how we are responsible to teach and admonish one another using them and to sing them with grace in our hearts to the Lord. And uh, this certainly has been the joy of the church in so many ages. The book of Psalms simply was the ancient hymnal of the church for several centuries. They adored the Psalms. It wasn't just a matter of obedience or um, constraint. Jerome, in the uh, fourth century, writes, you could not go into the fields, but you might hear the plowman at his hallelujahs and the vine dressers chanting the Psalms of David. Uh, in the fourth century part of the apostolic constitutions, it was said that the women, the children, and the humblest mechanics could repeat all the Psalms of David. They chanted them at home and abroad. They made them the exercises of their piety and the refreshment of their minds. Thus they had answers ready to oppose temptation and were always prepared to pray to God and to praise him in any circumstance in a form of his own indicting or uh, inspiration, we might say. Chrysostom in the East wrote, all Christians employ themselves in David's Psalms more frequently than in any other part of the Old or New Testament. The grace of the Holy Ghost has so ordered it that they should be recited and sung night and day. 
In the morning, David's psalms are sought for, and David is the first, the middle, and the last at funeral solemnities. The first, the middle, and the last is David. Many who know not a letter can say David's psalms by heart in private houses where virgins spin, in monasteries, in the deserts where men converse with God. The first, the middle, and the last is David. In the night when men are asleep, he wakes them to sing and collecting the servants of God into angelic troops, turns earth into heaven and makes men angels chanting David's psalms. I mean, they're, they're, they're so richly appreciated. There, there are several volumes. I have, a, I have a couple of them on my shelf about the psalms in human life, about how these psalms at various times were the, the very thing that made all the difference in the lives of the saints in their various troubles. The eminent uh, church historian Philip Schaff, the, uh, the editor and partly translator of that massive set of church fathers, the ones that you might see on scholars' desks, um, he uh, summarizes that uh, besides these psalms that were in wide use throughout the world, quote, we, we have no complete religious song remaining from the period of persecution. We just don't have any other songs for the first three centuries. He says there was the little poem by Clement. It doesn't seem to be uh, sung or even used in worship. But what we have is testimony after testimony, like I have read to you, even as I say, as late as third and fourth century, how very widespread this was. Now, if I'm not mistaken, uh, there are a few lines of songs from various heretics uh, condemned in those early centuries that we do have. Schaff is not actually talking about those. He was talking about it in the main line church. But in the second century, there was a certain heretic named Marcion who didn't like the God of the Old Testament, as he regarded him. So Marcion decided that he would publish his own version of the Bible. And it was a very interesting version of the Bible, by the way. It was his edited version of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and 10 of Paul's letters, that's it. He liked grace. He didn't like all that uh, wrath and enemies and everything else. In fact, one of the very earliest Christian writings we have is called the Muratorian Fragment that uh, gives us a list of the various biblical books that the church did receive in response to Marcion's Bible. And it not only complains that Marcion has rejected so much of the Bible, it also says, quote, they have also composed a new book of Psalms for Marcion. He didn't like the God of holiness, justice, and wrath. He didn't like that admonishing that goes on in the Psalms. So he made his own Bible that was full of grace, and he made his own songs that had none of that nasty admonishing stuff that people don't like to sing in worship in the Marcion churches. And so... He didn't uh, continue with the church's songs. Um, other various small things could be mentioned in the middle of the third century. The Synod of Antioch condemned uh, Paul of Samosata, sorry, Samosata, for teaching various heresies and, quote, discontinuing the psalms formerly used and establishing a new and very exceptionable hymnology. So the early church, especially in those days when it was seeking to purify the church from other writings that in some ways had crept in or those things advanced by various heretics, they not only uh, put forward the, uh, the books of the Bible, they also stressed the, the singing of biblical praise. Now, the early church at some point 
fairly early on began singing some verses from the New Testament as well. You would know that, by the way, reading some writers, but we do have some abundant reference to some biblical verses, especially some of the songs of the New Testament that were being used in worship in a couple of early centuries. But it it didn't really uh, uh, change much. First, middle, and last were David. Uh, Things didn't really start to change until the fourth century when the heretic Arius began teaching that Jesus was not fully God, very God of very God. He wrote some catchy songs that apparently were very effective in spreading his false teaching. And something interesting happened as a result. Um, Something happened in previous heresies, but in this case, the church's response began by uh, writing its own songs that taught the orthodox doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, and these are found, some of them are found in our Trinity hymnal. Things didn't begin to change right away in worship, and the truth is the church just couldn't decide on what to do. If you read some people, you might think that, well, all the synods and councils of the early church for hundreds of years only supported biblical praise. And if you read other writers, you would get the opposite impression. By the way, G.I. Williamson and uh, Bushnell and a couple of the others are uh, uh, simply mistaken at uh, a number a number of points. Very important to check original sources. They'll quote uh, synods in, against the singing of uninspired praise when in fact those synods are for in inspired praise. You have to get you have to check check their sources. I'm sure they're just repeating other people's scholarship. But the truth is, the the, the church didn't quite know what to do. There's a small synod in Laodicea in 364 AD, about 30 bishops, and they said, quote, no psalms composed by private individuals or uncanonical books may be read in the church, but only the canonical books of the Old and New Testaments. And uh, later in 563, a very small synod of eight bishops in Braga in Spain made the same rule, inspired songs are the only ones that we will allow. Uh, just four years later, at the larger, much larger Synod of Tours, Second Council of Tours, uh, defended uninspired songs. And a few years after that, the Fourth Council of Toledo in Spain said, anyone who rejects the singing of hymns, like those composed of Hillary and Ambrose, should be excommunicated. It's uh, hard to imagine a more militant group of hymn singers. The, sim- the Psalms, in any case, certainly stayed around and were a very integral part of the church's worship and ancient liturgies that are still today in so many places. But uninspired songs more and more gained popularity. And this is a story that has played out again and again in the church that, that, that weighs on my mind still. And that's why I'm spending a little extra time in this introduction The story that is played out again and again is that somehow the uninspired songs, whether or not they are are, uh, biblical or allowed, my point is this, somehow these songs become like the seven lean cows that swallow up the seven fat cows, and, uh, you know, in, in short order, somehow biblical praise is completely lost in a short time. I could... I could give you many examples. Happened here in America. Anybody know the first book published in America? Anyone? 
The Bay Psalm Book. Very good. Actually has a longer Puritan title, but we'll take that as the correct answer. Uh, bing. And so, um, yes, uh, Bay, Bay Psalm Book had uh, uh, 150 psalms. They, they actually, the, the uh, um, Pilgrim Fathers, they brought a whole bunch of different Psalters with them uh, over to America, sought to revise them, and they did an excellent job, really, in uh, translating it to be uh, more faithful to the Word of God. 150 psalms, and, you know, you read some authors and you think, you know, see, uh, t 10, not even 10 years uh, later, uh, they had uh, uh, continued to uh, do other translations. They added a number of scripture paraphrases. So the third edition has a number of scripture paraphrases in it as well. Um, there was a lot of suspicion in America about uh, the hymns of Watts and um, uh, men from the Great Awakening time period. Jonathan Edwards, of course, a very big fan of such hymns. Those things, not a, not big, uh, n not a big part of worship, at least, until the mid-1700s. But then as soon as the mid-1700s were over, uh, there was a complete revolution. Psalms were not sung anymore at all. Uh, Watts and Wesley ruled the day. And we think, okay, what, what happened that things were so um, quickly overturned? What happened? And where are the Psalms today, we might say? Um, why is it that you would say something like a singing of Psalm and people look at you like, who would do that? I never heard of that. Um, where are they, and why has this happened? You, you think for a minute here, and you can give me some ideas later if you have. A friend of my father-in-law wrote an introduction to a book, uh, McDonald's book, the reprint, and he asked the question, why don't we use the Psalms in Christian worship anymore at all? I mean, even up through the 20th century, the Psalms are used extensively, and at times exclusively in Christian worship, but what changed? The Psalms haven't changed. Here's the man's answer. We have changed. We have changed. He writes, our thinking about the nature of God, Christ, and his reign as God's anointed have changed so that the Psalms no longer fit our perspective. And he says that the great tragedy is not that the Psalms have been lost, although that is a tragedy. He says that the great tragedy is that the God of the Psalms has been lost. And he wants to bring us back to biblical song in order that we might recover more and more the biblical God. Dr. Johnson once said, if he were allowed to make the ballads of a nation, he cared not who made the laws. One writes, it's true in a more important sense that he is, who is permitted to make the hymns of the church need care little who preaches or who makes the creed. He will more effectively mold the sentiments of a church than they who preach or make creeds and confessions. All this I say to you by way of introduction. The apostle is zealous in this book, as we have seen, that Christ be first, middle, and last in everything, in all things. 
that in all things he might have the preeminence. And he goes through a great scope of things, applying Christ to them and warning the church at every point not to uh, uh, accept anything less than the full Christ that they already have received, avoiding traditions of men, whatnot. And it's in that uh, context, as I explained some weeks ago, that we have this verse here stuck in the middle, that let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Christ is being applied to all these different areas here. The word of Christ, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing in grace with your hearts to the Lord. Well, here in our passage, uh, he's devoted particularly with uh, uh, Christ as the center of our devotion, letting the word of Christ dwell richly in us in all wisdom. And as we read this morning, the Holy Spirit's particular work is to bring the things of Christ to us. So what exactly are these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, or possibly uh, spiritual psalms, hymns, and songs as the grammar allows. Can't be too dogmatic either way, simply to say it's possible that spiritual applies to all three. Well, it must be assumed, surely, that uh, these were songs that they would understand and they knew about, otherwise they could not have, they could not have um, obeyed this command that the, the word of Christ uh, in song had, had to be made known to them so that they could teach and admonish one another in it. But what compositions then could he possibly be referring to? Um, I uh, cannot say for certain if there is anything um, in the uninspired category which could possibly have been there. I can simply say that there is no evidence that uh, the Colossian church at this very early day, this is before the Gospels or anything are even available, not even New Testament songs would be available. It's hard to say uh, uh for sure, but one thing I can say, there's no, no evidence that there's any other early songs uh, or you know, hymns in the modern sense floating around in that day. Um, now, many scholars note that there's simply no agreement about the meaning of these three words, psalms, hymns, and uh, spiritual songs or songs. Um, even the agreement of where the adjective should fall in the list. F.F. Bruce makes a typical comment, not to weary you, but it is unlikely that any sharply demarcated division is intended, although the Psalms might be drawn from the Old Testament Psalter, which is supplied the chief vehicle for Christian praise from primitive times. The hymns might be Christian canticles, and the spiritual songs might be unpremeditated words, the spirit voicing vocal aspirations. End quote. You notice how many times he, he, he just says might. I mean, it's just his suggestion. There, there's, no, there's no evidence for this. Uh, the word song was in pretty common use. The word hymn was in pretty common use. Even, even solo, uh, to sing a psalm as we have it, we, we mean something very particular by psalms, but, but, but they did not. So uh, he uses the range of the word in the ancient language to say, well, it, it could be all these things. He goes into other books of the Bible. Uh, the truth is we, we just have no pr practical example of anything else. But there is something that we do know for sure, that these three Greek words are found throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but most especially, by far, in the book of Psalms. The word psalm occurs 87 times in the Greek Old Testament, 67 times in the titles 
for the Psalms. Hymns occur 17 times, 13 of them in the book of Psalms. Songs, 80 times, 36 of them in the song titles, and many other times in the Psalms themselves, singing a song to the Lord and so forth. So this we can say for sure that for any, any reader of the Hebrew scriptures, uh, overwhelmingly their, their thought would have been drawn to where these words continually come before them in the book of Psalms. Uh, surely, as I say, we know that uh, from the early days in which we have records, the Psalter was the book of the Old Testament. Now, someone will ask, well, what about other songs? Aren't there many other songs in the Bible, in the Hebrew Scriptures, certainly in this day, it's all that they've got in the Hebrew Scriptures that were commanded to be sung, like the song of Moses at the Red Sea that was to be taught to the children of Israel for them to sing, the song of Moses before his death, the song of Deborah, the song of Hannah, David's lamentation of over Jonathan, uh, the song of David at the promise of the Messiah, the song of Isaiah about his vineyard, or much better, the song of thanks for his mercies, Isaiah's song for confidence in God, Hezekiah's song, lamentations, so forth. There are many other songs. Uh, are these words used there? Indeed, indeed they are. Uh, it's clear that these are songs or psalms or hymns, if you like, uh, and uh, that... Uh, these, the, uh, these biblical uh, uh, songs are also uh, called by this, the same things. There's even the case of Hezekiah, who we read in Isaiah 38, that he, close to his death, uh, with, with a close, close brush with death, uh, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he'd been sick and was recovered of his illness, he gives a song. Um, the Lord was ready to save me, and so forth. And he writes afterward, Therefore, we will sing my songs to the stringed instruments all the days of our life in the house of the Lord. We don't actually get the song, by the way. We just uh, get a little bit about it here. So here's Hezekiah expressing his uh, thanks to God in a song that we don't have, but he uses the possessive plural, Hezekiah speaks of my songs, and my songs, plural, are going to be sung in the temple worship of God by the uh, leaders with stringed instruments and so forth. Um, this seems to be a proved example that uh, even in the old days, people did write new songs for particular mercies received, that uh, certainly the king in this case inspired or not, we can't say, we don't actually have the song, uh, but simply the king uh, submitted his songs to be sung in worship, at least one of which were written as a result of new deliverances. So people have seized upon this and uh, other such examples and said, see, in the Bible, people write new songs, uninspired songs, to be sung in God's worship, and this is a proved example. Hmm possibly may be. As I say, the ancient church was divided on the matter. Uh, the uh, church uh, later at the Reformation, you know, Luther and the Anabaptists, they, they, they wrote hymns. Um, uh, Anglicans, uh, the Calvinists, and so forth, they, uh, especially being great scholars of the church fathers, 
uh, reading all these wonderful testimonies of psalms and considering the matter again, they, they went back to the Psalter almost exclusively. The church, even at the Reformation, couldn't quite agree. 100 years later at the Westminster Assembly, um, Westminster Assembly puts together a revision of Rouse's Psalms and submits it to the Church of Scotland to sing. In 1647, they give it to a committee to revise, and in the same General Assembly, 1647, that receives the Psalter, gives it to a committee to revise, it'll be published in 1650, that same General Assembly appoints another man to translate other verses from the New Testament in order to be sung. Uh, 17 songs to be uh, drafted by a Zachary Boyd. They were finished the year after, submitted to another committee, and then the Civil War broke on the scene and uh, Cromwell shut down the General Assembly for many years. Things didn't get going again until the 18th century, in which case the Scottish paraphrases after a few false starts were finally approved. Even the Scottish General Assembly wanted psalms and uh, other songs from the Bible translated and available to sing. Westminster Assembly itself, by the way, I, I struggle to know how much of this to put into the sermon because half of you guys are like, I don't care about this at all. Half of you are like, this is very important. I've only heard one side of this. Westminster Assembly itself. You read some people in the assembly and you think, well, everybody believed in the singing of psalms exclusively. Well, because that's all people quote. Uh, the Westminster Annotations, the official commentary on the Bible produced by the Westminster Divines, has a comment on, uh, well, the Colossians comment tells you to see the Ephesians comment, and the Ephesians comment says, yeah, the Psalms are probably biblical songs, uh, hymns, probably other compositions, and spiritual songs, probably uh, um, uh, uh, charismatic songs, uh, human compositions, charismatic songs. A and you think, well, even the Westminster Assembly itself has some very divided ideas. It's difficult to know. We have even a divided practice here in, in so many ways. And I am very, very glad that people have fought through this deeply, that people have come to an understanding and convictions, and that you stick to them. This is the important thing in the book of Romans. Um, in these areas where it's sometimes difficult to know, where the church has been divided for many years, uh, what is not coming from faith is sin. And rather than uh, judging and condemning one another, we should do the things that make for edification and for peace. And so, at any rate, uh, whatever these three words mean here, or what, however we are to understand Hezekiah's songs or other similar passages, uh, we are to at least recognize the superiority in many important ways of inspired praise. And certainly every Christian should delight to sing it. Whether other things may be sung is an open question, I say, from history, but what must be sung, I think, is absolutely clear. John McNodder writes, this is the oldest hymn book in existence, having connected a record through thousands of years down to our own times, and is consecrated forever as having been the hymnody of our Savior and the apostolic church. In light of its age-long history, of its rich poetry, its unsectarian Catholic character, of its freedom from error, of its well-proportioned thought, of its theological depth and spiritual quality, of the wealth of evangelical matter, 
its supremacy in the utterance of devotion and religious experience, and of the unexampled strains in which it celebrates the glories of God, there is ample occasion for the plea that the churches of Christ recognize in the Psalter their heritage of sacred song as against human composition with its necessary imperfections. So um, I point out to you also that if you do simply sample spirit-inspired praise throughout the Bible, you compare the song of Miriam, the prophetess, the song of Deborah, prophetess, song of Mary, the song of Zechariah, and so forth, the saints in Revelation, you notice that it, it all sounds like exactly the same. Exactly, because there is one in the same author, ultimately, that is the Holy Spirit. And if you sing other things, as most of you do, you have to realize God's inspired praise, from Genesis to Revelation at least, is the standard for what good praise sounds like by which you can sit in judgment upon other songs coming out today. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, amen. Repeat. Uh, it was popular a couple years ago. If you didn't know it, if you didn't hear it, then you wouldn't go to the right church. But I, I hope that you will then begin to judge all worship and praise by the only standard that we have and we can have, the inspired word and praises of God, and to train our hearts to love the inspired praise, because we are commanded, indeed, to teach and admonish one another through them. That's not only Sunday, of course. That's not at all limited. These psalms need to be a part of our minds and a part of our lives. Uh, it is very practically important, and I have spent a good amount of time on that point. I wanted to say more to you about the practical importance of these biblical songs. Um, do uh, any of y'all have uh, a jello mold at home? Probably not you guys, but some of you ladies, a jello mold. You know how that works, right? You take this hot uh, mixture of gelatin and sugar, you pour it in this mold, and then it, it takes that shape, right? Uh, watch it wiggle, jello brand gelatin. Um, the Psalms are like this mold for our Christian experience. It's what filled the mind of the Savior, right? We see this just again and again and again. Uh, the, the, the Psalms pouring from his mouth and teaching us to bear the cross likewise. Uh, so many of the saints, same thing. We, we read these Psalms, Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquities, who heals all our diseases, who redeems our lives from destruction and crowns us with loving kindness and tender mercies and so forth. We all experience this psalm differently because of the various sins that he's forgiven from us, the iniquities, the one who's healed our diseases. How thankful we are as we take these psalms with us through life and we are able then to praise God in a means of his own composing. We take our own experiences, our own iniquities that he's pardoned, our own diseases that he's healed, and the Psalms are written with this very thing in mind. Did you notice that the language they use is so general? Scholars spend so much time speculating on the original situation that caused some author to write a particular Psalm that missed the point entirely. All the specifics are left out 
for a reason, except for maybe on the title of the psalm, right, about something like that. But all the specifics in the praise are left out because these are songs for all of God's people at all times. So these experiences often described in the most general terms because even though specific times and circumstances change, our experiences with God stay the same. And therefore, you can't be an uninvolved reader and understand these psalms. Or as Ed Clowney says, it's not enough for you to have hold of a text. The text has to have hold of you. And this is the way you must read the psalms or else you misread them. You take them with you in your life. You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You speak them. You teach and admonish with them. You... You understand them in new ways as the time goes. I remember Al Martin, he said that he uh, was uh, reading the psalm about uh, you will see your children's children unto Israel be peace. And he thought, see my children's children? I mean, that's it? I just get to see them? I mean, I would get very excited if it said they would become mighty warriors and that uh, they would do great things, but just see them? Didn't get it. Then he had grandchildren. Ah, he sees his children, children. All is explained. As we ourselves, going through life, uh, more and more have them as the mold of our experience, we are able to understand the oracles of God and to teach them to others, and particularly in times of difficulty. They are written to be helpful in all times. And so we have uh, a number of laments in our Psalter, especially, as I mentioned to you earlier. How many laments do we have in the Trinity Hymnal? Mm, Not very many. What kind of effect does that have? Do we know how to express sadness and work through it? You know, there's a general feeling in evangelical piety that you should never be down. If you're down, you're not trusting the Lord, brother. Christians should always be up, 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 and chipper. To have faith means that you are not sorrowful. Well, the book of Psalms thoroughly frees you from that helps you to be very honest with yourselves. There's an honesty in the Psalms that many other writers will just shrink back from. The Psalms encourage us to come to God in the midst of our weeping, like the Psalm 56 we sang earlier, right? And, and to pour out our hearts before him, to find rest and comfort, to cry out without sin. And the simple observation they make that many things in life just aren't right, that is extremely freeing to many people. And you know, these psalms, as I say, in the times of the martyrdom, they have been so precious in years past. Well, um, I could go on. I'll simply conclude by saying our emotions are very powerful things, and they can master us and lead us astray if they are not channeled, corrected, and directed. Many people have tried to figure out over the years, philosophers, what's the most important faculty we have? The mind, the will, the emotions? Uh, I've never been convinced. I think that, you know, it's like, it's like uh, you know, you need the whole ship. You can't just deal with the bow or the stern or the middle part. You need the whole boat to float. Um, and the Bible doesn't only speak to our mind and our will. It speaks very directly in this book to our emotions. Um, Sometimes we have to fight against our emotions and put them to death. But our emotions are very important to a Christian life. And these psalms 
are meant to give us new emotions, new heights of righteous emotion. Feel good religion. Maybe you're not a Christian and you thought that being a Christian was about believing certain things and obeying certain things. Well, those things are important, but it's not the whole story. Or maybe you are a Christian, but you've never felt any real love for God, any real need for God, any holy affection toward God, but you want to. The Psalms are given to lead you and convince you. The Word of God can change you and warm your heart so that you can say with David, I love the Lord because. Anybody know the next couple words? I love the Lord because. All right, very good. The rest of you, you have to go back and look it up. See, this is how it works. You put these in your heart, you start to train your heart with the words. Maybe you're a child, maybe you've been coming here for years, and you, you know, you obey your parents, you come to church, but if you're honest, you've never been able to get very excited about this. We speak about the love of God and the fear of God, and you just can't relate, and you wish you had some enthusiasm for spiritual things and say, can anybody help? Oh, God has raised up for you men after his own heart in order that you might have all the help that you need, that you can come and have your heart warmed and be transformed by praise. These are given to give us a supernatural worship, to transform our worship like nothing else does. You say to your Pentecostal friends, hey, come over and sing some songs that are written by the Holy Spirit. Come on. No, 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 we do it. Our experience of worship is to be our experience of responding to the word of truth and wisdom and letting it dwell in us richly. And when that truth takes hold of us, takes hold of our mind and will and emotions, we are more and more able to love the Lord our God with heart and soul and strength. This is the book of the Bible more than any other by far that is directed to your heart. And I believe that the Psalms can give us right emotions, great emotions, which can lead us to new heights of living and obedience and faith that we would not be able to reach otherwise. Because our God is a great God. Nowhere else is it so beautifully and majestically expressed in the whole Bible than in these songs that many of you, I understand, are struggling to learn week after week. Give yourselves to them, and you will find not only the Psalms are good, but the God of the Psalms is great. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how thankful we are that you have given to us uh, such a word to arrest our very hearts, to direct them so high above us. Indeed, we feel in so many ways reading these psalms that there's so much we don't even understand. There's so many things that are above us, uh, spiritually speaking, if not in our theology as well, and yet how much we would desire to stir ourselves up to more and more uh, ascend with these psalms of ascent and uh, to, to uh, glory in these psalms of praise, to weep with those who weep in the psalms of lament, to have the hope, the hope that you hold forth in psalm after psalm of the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. How we long to lay hold of such things in our hearts. May you give them to us afresh in this precious part of your holy word. We pray it for Christ's sake.